Okay. So, we'll visualize the merit field. Buddha is surrounded by all the other Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Ourselves surrounded by all the living beings. Imagine if all those living beings, of all of them, none of them felt nervous in front of the Buddhas. And none of them were afraid of criticism. And none of them were afraid of each other's criticism. or of each other uh, taking not just their cheese, but anything else, too. So let's generate the altruistic intention to bring that about. Through practicing the Dharma well ourselves, so that we can skillfully guide others. So think of how we get punished by our anger, what that looks like, how that happens. And then think of some of the antidotes you could apply, things you could contemplate when you get anger, angry, so that you don't get punished by your anger.
and then make a determination to really work on overcoming your anger so it doesn't overcome you. And instead to replace it by a mind of respect and a mind uh, that cherishes other living beings. Okay, so there were some questions and issues that arose. Um, Okay, so the question whether nirvana is both an emptiness and a true cessation, or only an emptiness, that is the emptiness of mind that has abandoned either just... uh, not just, either the afflictive obscurations or those and the cognitive obscurations. Okay. So, yes, true cessation, there's a big debate about it, a big discussion about it, okay? But uh, His Holiness's position is that true cessation is emptiness. Okay. And when you think about it, Two sixty three. Okay. Okay, so that what part of this discussion about if it's emptiness, if true cessation is an emptiness, depends on uh what is true cessation a non-affirming negative or non-affirming negation? Okay, because emptiness is a non-affirming negation. So if uh, true cessations were emptiness, they would also have to be. Okay, so... um, Okay, so I'm, I'm looking in in the book on page uh, 263. Some people say nirvana is an emptiness, the lack of inherent existence that never existed. This is a non-affirming negative, a permanent phenomena, and an ultimate truth. Others say nirvana is the extinguishment of the afflictions which did exist. It is an ultimate truth, but not an emptiness. Okay. So, it would, it depends a lot on how we see uh, the afflictions as being extinguished, what this extinguishment is. If 
we see the extinguishment as the afflictions being impermanent phenomena, and so they just naturally age and pass away because that's the nature of impermanent phenomena, then, uh, you know, they're not going to, uh, yeah, their elimination is not going to be a, a true cessation, okay? If we see them being eliminated by some other cause or some other thing that affects them, and makes them cease, like you, you know, a hammer comes and breaks the table, then also, you know, their extinguishment isn't going to be a non-affirming negative. Yeah, because it, it, it's actually a, a having um, ceased of the object, which is an affirming negative. Okay. But in the case of the afflictions, and the the uh, cognitive obscurations, uh, in terms of their being extinguished, it's um, because of ignorance being cut. So when ignorance is cut, then there is no base for those afflictions. Yeah. So nothing else ceases them; they just cease to exist. Okay, then somebody was saying um, on page 266, yeah, that uh, the Pali tradition on Nirvana, page 266, seems to be saying that most sages assert that Nirvana is only an emptiness and not a true cessation. I don't think it says that. Okay. Saying that Nirvana is an emptiness does not mean it cannot also be a a true cessation. And saying it's a true cessation doesn't mean it can't also be uh, an emptiness. I think often where we get stuck, and this has come up many times in the studies, is we have one word and we want it to have one meaning only. But as we know from our own language, one word can have many, many different meanings. So if you look at nirvana in one way, yeah, you could see it as the extinguishment of um, something that existed. If you look at it another way, you can you could see it as the emptiness of inherent existence. Okay, so you know the book is pointing out that there's a debate, yeah, and uh, the debate is very difficult actually to settle if you uh, read a lot. Um, If you read um, Guy Newland's Two Truths, he talks about this a lot in, um, yeah, there's a whole section on the, what's it called? Uh, The whole chapter about 
about ultimate truths. So it would be in there, and he talks about this debate and how... Uh, but, you know, and how it's, it's... You can find reasons on both sides. You can find quotations on both sides. Yeah. His Holiness seems to have it very clear. He thinks that true cessation is an emptiness. And the example he gives... Okay... Apparently, Guy, when he was working on this book, um, went and spoke to His Holiness about it. So, he says, I asked His Holiness Tenzin Gyatso, the present Dalai Lama, to comment on this issue. He gave this example. Suppose a table, which represents the mind, is basically clean. So the mind is basically empty of inherent existence. If one pours oil, meaning the afflictions, on the table, the mind, so pollute, you know, gets the mind all dirty, and then wipes the, the oil away, yeah, so the, the mind has filth on it, then it gets cleansed, yeah, there is nothing left but a clean table. And remember that clean table was the emptiness of inherent existence of the table. Okay. So uh, he continues reasoning that in a similar way, the factor of purity from the circumstantial uh, stains of the afflictions must be rooted in the natural purity, which is the absence of inherent existence of the mind. And so, uh, reasoning that, His Holiness said that true cessations are emptinesses. In his opinion, that, uh, that the validity of this position is established mainly through reasoning and reflection, and not merely through the citations of scriptural evidence. Okay? So, you know, if you consider the analogy... Uh, the table's clean. By its nature, it's clean. You put some filth on it. Yeah, that doesn't sink into the nature of of the table. The filth is cleaned off. What are you left with? Again, the clean table. So you're left again with the natural purity of the mind. So. We often say there's two purities, the natural purity, yeah, which is the emptiness of inherent existence of the mind, and then the um, uh, adventitious, the purity from, uh, from adventitious defilements. And that's like the true cessation when, because the, uh, the things that have been removed by the true path when they're removed, you have the true cessation. Yeah. Okay. And so similarly, there was a question about the, the two nature bodies. When we talk about um, the, the Buddha, the Dharmakaya, we divide it into the wisdom, the wisdom truth body and the nature truth body. Then the nature truth body gets further subdivided into the nat- the natural um, nature body 
and then the the true cessations, yeah. Or we could say the the natural emptiness of a Buddha's mind and the true cessations of a Buddha's mind. Okay, so those are both emptinesses. They aren't two different nature bodies, like you know, this piece of paper and this piece of paper. Okay, there there's the same thing. When we look at it from the the um, natural uh, nature body, we're looking at the emptiness of the mind from the perspective that it's never been inherently existent. When we look at it from the perspective of it's free from adventitious defilements, then we're seeing it as a true cessation. What remains after the defilements have been removed. Okay? So it's not that this this topic is not so easy, okay? But, um, you know, it, it pays off to and to think about it and, and how it could work. Okay. So let's carry on now. Um, so we were talking about, uh, in the Pali tradition, what nirvana was. And it seems, just as in um, the Nalanda tradition, you know, sometimes we talk about nirvana as being the emptiness of inherent existence of a mind that is free from um, all, all pollution, okay? And sometimes, in some contexts, we talk about, um, about true cessations as being, uh, or we talk about, I'm sorry, we talk about nirvana as being the lack of ignorance, anger, attachment, you know, of, of the causes of samsara. Yeah, so it's just two different ways of, I think, of looking at nirvana if you understand that the true cessations are just what's left after you take out the stuff, not that the afflictions were destroyed by an external agent or that they just faded away naturally because they were impermanent okay but to keep keep them to keep it as a non-affirming negation okay but so just as the nalanda traditions can see nirvana in two different ways you know if it's uh the inher- the emptiness of the mind, then it's the object of meditation. If it's the absence of the defilements, then it's um, you know, it's it's what the what remains after the true path has done its its thing. Okay, um, and so similarly, the Pali tradition. Tends in some, you know, they talk about nirvana as being the object of meditation, um, and that in that tradition, that's what you're meditating on when you go from being uh, an having an ordinary worldly mind to a super mundane mind when you realize uh, nature of reality. Okay. So they, you know, it's quite interesting in the Pali tradition because, you know, we talk about the three characteristics of impermanence, dukkha, and no self. 
in in the Nalandra tradition, perceiving no self or selflessness means that you've realized emptiness. At least in the Prasangika, in the lower schools, you've realized something else. But in the Prasangika, you've realized emptiness. In the Pali tradition, re- the realization of no self is considered a worldly realization because no self is a quality of worldly thing, of a worldly person, okay, of a worldly mind. Yeah. So the so realizing no self is not like realizing the ultimate nature of the mind or the ultimate nature of the person. Okay. Yeah. Whereas in in the Nalanda tradition, self realizing selflessness is realizing the ultimate nature. Okay. So in the Pali tradition, you're meditating on the three characteristics. And then when you break through that so that your object of meditation becomes nirvana, that's when you have a, uh, a super mundane mind. Okay? So the realization of selflessness is not a super mundane mind. It's, an, it's a worldly mind. Yeah, quite interesting. Yeah. It's it's just two different ways of looking at selflessness. Yeah. Okay. So nirvana can be the object of meditation in the Pali tradition, and it can also be the cessation of ignorance, anger, attachment, rebirth, craving, aging, sickness, death. Okay, it can also be the cessation of that. And that's seeing it, you know, as, yeah, the the cessation of something that did exist. So I don't know if this is getting across clearly or not. I'm, I'm assuming that you remember something from last week, but I'm looking at faces and it seems like uh, maybe not, uh, like two weeks, yeah. Uh, that that people uh, forgot that they had notes and they forgot that they had books and uh, didn't bother to prepare for class, in which case um, we need to think about things. Okay, so then on page 268, this is where we left off. So this is the Pali tradition talking about nirvana as the object of meditation. So you see the two ways in both traditions, nirvana being the object of meditation and nirvana being the cessation of the causes of dukkha. Okay, And then the question is, is the cessation of the causes of dukkha, you know, a non-affirming negation? Yeah, and uh, yeah, so at least that's the question for the Nalanda tradition. Okay, anyway, some sutras in the Pali tradition present nirvana as the object of meditation of a supramundane path, where it refers more to a negation or a lack of something that never existed. So that's similar, yeah. So the Buddha says, 
um, there are, O monastics, these three characteristics that define the unconditioned. The unconditioned always means nirvana. What three? No arising is seen. No vanishing is seen. No changing while it persists is seen. Okay. What I find interesting in these passages from the Pali Sutras is they sound a lot like things in the Perfection of Wisdom Sutras. And they sound a lot like things found in Nagarjuna and Chandrakirti. Yeah. And you know, one of the things I think how I really benefited doing the research for this is is seeing that uh, you know the two traditions may not be as far apart as we tend to make them when we um, put them into very strict uh, tenant systems. Yeah. So unlike conditioned phenomena that arise and pass away, nirvana, the unconditioned, is free from such fluctuation. Having no arising, nirvana is not produced from causes and conditions. Okay? It never vanishes or ceases because of causes and conditions. And while it exists... It is, does not change or transform into something else. Okay, so it's not produced from causes and conditions. It's just the energy that sustained it ceased. So nothing caused it to cease. The, the energy that sustained it became non-existent. Okay, and so... It's not produced. It doesn't. Um, um, it's not produced from causes and conditions. It doesn't cease by causes and conditions. It doesn't change from one thing to the next. Yeah. So when you've realized nirvana, you've realized it. That's it. Okay. So here, nirvana is presented as a simple negation of attributes that never existed in it. So the Buddha described nirvana here from the Pali text, the Udana. One, uh, one that is dependent on craving and views has wavering. Okay, so something that's dependent on craving and views wavers because craving and views are changing all the time. Okay, One that is not dependent has no wavering. There being no wavering, there is calm. There being calm, there is no yearning. There being no yearning, there is no coming or going, meaning birth or death. There being no coming or going, there is no passing away or arising. In other words, there's no secession uh, um, uh, or sequence of deaths and rebirths. There being no passing away or arising, there is neither a here nor a there, meaning this world or another world in the next life, nor an in-between the two. Okay. This, uh, just, just this, just this is the end of dukkha. 
Okay, so that's one way of talking about nirvana. Yeah. So, you know, both traditions really look at the ultimate nature and as the true cessation that we want to actualize in our mind as being a negation, as being something that is unconditioned. Us as worldly beings in samsara, we usually think of happiness as things that are conditioned. Because things that are conditioned, you know, then we can have new things that we didn't have before, and new things can grow, and there's always some excitement, and there's something new to get, or even something new to fight against, but that keeps us occupied so we're not bored. You know, in samsara, we want action, and we, you know, we like conditioned things. But nirvana is seen as something that is permanent, that does not change, and that that is what brings the real peace that we're seeking. Because with all this stuff happening all the time, it might be exciting, but there's no peace in it. Yeah, But we're really addicted to the excitement, aren't we? We like excitement. And when there's not enough new things happening, we get bored. And we want something to happen. Yeah. So it's... Uh, I think it involves, I mean, definitely a different way of looking at things if we think of attaining nirvana. Because yeah, we have to stop our addiction with, you know, new things popping up and new exciting things and managing this and putting it together with that and bringing these things together and creating something new and making, yeah, all this. and And to see... Um, the value of just being able to rest the mind in the nature of reality. Mm -hmm. Okay, in another sutra, this is also from the Uddhana, um, the Buddha says, there is monastics, that base, where there is neither earth, nor water, nor heat, nor air, neither the base of the infinity of space, nor the base of the infinity of consciousness, nor the base of nothingness, nor the base of neither discrimination nor non-discrimination. So he just went through the four formless realms. Okay, So there exists a base where you don't have the four elements, where you don't have the four formless realms, Okay, where there is neither this world nor another world, this birth or another one, neither sun nor moon. Here, monastics, I say there is no coming and going, so no co go, coming from one life and going on to the next, no standing still, no passing away, and no being reborn. It is not established, not moving, without support. Just this is the end of dukkha. Okay. 
So the cessation of dukkha yeah, is not anything like the theistic heaven. Okay, Theistic heaven, there's a lot going on, isn't there? You know, you're with your nuclear family. Yeah, nuclear has two words. I mean, two meanings. But, you know, you're enjoying bliss with your nuclear family. But it seems to me the bliss of heaven, we would, you would get kind of tired of it after a while. I mean, how many family dinners can you have on Sunday night? And like that with your family in heaven and, and whatever. Okay. Um, okay. But here, you know, what's the end of dukkha? Freedom from rebirth under the uh, influence of afflictions and karma. So that's a real kind of freedom, isn't it? You know, no more family dinners <laughs> um, and everything else that goes with them. Okay, but no more rebirth either. Okay, another uh, sutra from the Udana uh, says... There is monastics, an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unfabricated. All these uns, it gives you the feeling of simplicity, you know. There's not a, a hullabaloo going on here, okay. If monastics, if monastics, there were no unborn, no unbecome, no unmade, no unconditioned, then no escape uh, would be discerned from what is born, become, made, and fabricated. In other words, if these things of unborn, unbecome, unmade, unconditioned, you know, we think of those things as uh, we could think of them as total, total non-existent. Okay, it's showing that true cessation and emptiness are not to be confused with total non-existence, because if emptiness meant there's total non-existence, then you know, then what are you going to achieve? if you cease birth, aging, sickness, and death. You know, there's, there's nothing, uh, there's, there's no state of liberation, there's no nirvana, because nirvana means nothing exists, and, and that, you know, or emptiness means nothing exists, and that's not true, okay? Okay, emptiness is the lack of inherent existence, yeah? Non-existence, total non-existence, is the lack of existence. And the inherent existence and existence are two different things. Okay, existence exists. Inherent existence never existed. Okay, so we shouldn't get them confused. Okay. So because there is an unborn, unbecome, unmade, unfabricated, because that exists, then 
we can escape. In other words, we can cease the uh, what is born become made and fabricated. Okay, is this making, are you getting there? Something from this? So here nirvana is a distinct phenomena that has nothing to do with matter or even the deepest samadhis in samsara. Nirvana is a negation, no coming, no going, not made, and so forth. Without anything being posited or affirmed in their stead. Okay, so it's just saying unborn. It's not saying uh, not made from apples. Okay. (laughs) Because nirvana exists, samsara can be overcome. If if nirvana did not exist, then you couldn't see survival. You couldn't see samsara. Nirvana is not total non-existence. The language the Buddha uses in the above two passages reminds us of Nagarjuna's homage in his treatise on the Middle Way. Okay, so you remember the these last two passages. Then listen to his homage. And this is from the Karikas, you know, Nagarjuna's famous text. I prostrate to the perfect Buddha, the best of all teachers, who taught that that which is dependent arising is without cessation, without arising, without annihilation, without absolutism, without coming, without going, without distinction, without identity, and peaceful, free from fabrication. So again, negation, negation, negation. Yeah, that's how Nagarjuna goes about it. That's how some of these polytexts go about it, too. Okay, then an, um, a, the Abhidhamma Atta San, uh, Sangaha. So this is a, um, a Pali Abhidharma text. I think it's a commentary. Um, it says, Nibbana is termed supramundane, and is to be realized by the knowledge of the four paths. The four paths, paths, of, uh, paths are consciousnesses, okay? So the four paths of stream-enter, once-returner, non-returner, and arhat. It becomes an object of the paths and the fruits, okay? So the fruit is when you have eliminate the paths are when you are eliminating the defilements the fruits are when you have eliminated them so it becomes an object of the paths and fruits and is called nibbana because it is a departure from craving which is an entanglement okay so it's realized nibbana is realized by the true paths the true paths are impermanent. Yeah, they're consciousnesses. But what they realize is permanent. So nirvana is the object of only a supramundane path, the supreme ultimate mind cognizing the supreme ultimate object. Nirvana is, is spoken of as having three aspects. So this is again from the Pali Abhidharma. One, 
Because nirvana is empty of ignorance, animosity, and attachment, and because it is empty of the conditioned, it is called emptiness. Okay. Then two, because it is free from the signs of ignorance, animosity, and attachment, and is free from the uh, free from the signs of conditioned things, it's called signless. And because nirvana is free from the hankering of ignorance, anger, and attachment, and because it is not wished for by craving, it is wishless. So these three, emptiness, signlessness, wishlessness, we see them in in several different contexts. Yeah, They all refer to emptiness, looking at it from different different ways. So Ananda once asked Shariputra if a monk could attain a samadhi in which he does not perceive any mundane phenomenon, such as the four elements, the the formless absorptions, this world and the world beyond, and yet uh, be still percipient, still have consciousness. So Shariputra points to his experience of a state of samadhi in which this occurs. Okay, so it's going to be nirvana, yeah, so the nirvana is free from all these conventional things, the four elements, the four formless absorptions, and so on. But the mind realizing nirvana is, is uh, it's alive, it perceives things. It's not without feeling and discrimination, some kind of drugged mind that doesn't uh, perceive anything. Okay. So that again shows, you know, because if it were that kind of mind that was realizing the ultimate nature and realizing nothing, you know, because there's not no object to realize, so that's why the mind isn't percipient, yeah, then nirvana uh, would be non-existent. Okay, so here's another quotation um, where Shariputra points to his experience of a state of samadhi in which this occurs. So nibbana is cessation of becoming. Nibbana is cessation of becoming. One such perception arose in me, and another such perception ceased. Just as when the fire of a fire of twigs is burning, one flame arises and another flame ceases. Even so, nibbana is cessation of becoming. Nibbana is cessation of becoming. One such perception arose in me, and another such perception ceased. On that occasion, friend, I perceived that nibbana is the cessation of becoming. Not easy to understand. Okay, here's a little bit of explanation. Shariputra indicates that nirvana is the object of his perception. The commentary explains that he entered a samadhi of the fruition attainment of an arhat, which is an attainment in which the mind of the arhat is absorbed on nirvana as an object. It's meditating on nirvana. It is not cessation of discrimination and feeling, 
nor the attainment of cessation in which there is no discrimination or feeling, because Shariputra is conscious. In this samadhi, an arhat may focus on one aspect of nirvana, for example, peaceful. It, it seems that Shariputra is focusing on nirvana and the cessation of becoming, that is, the absence of any active karma that could bring rebirth. Yeah, that would be nice, wouldn't it? Focus your mind on the absence of any kind of karma that could bring rebirth? So Buddha Gosa refutes a number of misconceptions about nirvana. So this is in the Visuddhimagga. The first is that nirvana is non-existent. So some of these wrong ideas he's refuting, they're, they're also refuted in the Nalanda tradition. Okay. So the first wrong idea is that nirvana is non-existent. Nirvana exists because it is apprehended by the super-mundane path. Okay, so that path does not apprehend nothing. Yeah, it apprehends nirvana. But nirvana is not a positive phenomena. We always want, when we think of phenomena, we always think of something that's positive. Yeah, but it's a non-affirming negation. It's an absence of something. Okay, so nirvana exists because it is apprehended by the super-mundane path. The fact that the limited minds of ordinary beings, like us, cannot perceive it does not render it non-existent. So just because we can't perceive something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. You know, we kind of have this arrogance in the age of science of if I, if I can't see it, if I can't measure it through scientific instruments, then it doesn't exist. And that's so wrong because, you know, our senses are limited to external objects. Um, you know, just saying that because I don't see it or because I can't, uh, see, you know, measure it through scientific instruments, well, there's a lot of things that can't be measured through scientific instruments, although many scientists are trying to measure everything through scientific instruments. For example, you know, you take the emotion of love, yeah? So, I mean, really, can you measure love with scientific instruments? No, but you try to say, but when you have love, then this area of the brain something is flickering and going on, so then you wind up saying that those neurons and that those chemicals are love, which is like, doesn't make any sense, does it? Okay, so we have to get over this thing that that things are are obscured, polluted mind is able to see everything that exists. Yeah, this His Holiness explains it very well that, um, you know, 
there's some things we can't see because they're far away, some things we can't see because there's an interfering object like the wall, you know. Um, but there, there's many things that we can't see because of uh, the pollution in our mind. Yeah. But that doesn't mean these things don't exist just because we can't see them. Mm-hmm. Okay, so... Uh, Okay, so um, where was where was it? Okay, so the first is that nirvana is non-existent. Nirvana exists because it is apprehended by the super mundane path. The fact that the limited minds of ordinary beings cannot perceive it does not render it non-existent. If nirvana were non-existent, practicing the path would be futile, and attempting to realize nirvana would be useless. Because there would be, if nirvana did not exist, there would be no alternative to samsara, in which samsara, you know, samsara couldn't uh, cease. So practicing the path to end samsara would be totally useless, because there's no alternative. Okay, Buddha Vagosa also refutes the assertion that nirvana is simply the disintegration of defilements and the ceasing of existence. Okay, If nirvana were the destruction of craving, it would not be the unconditioned, because the destruction of craving is a conditioned event. Yeah, Why is it conditioned? Because it, the, the true paths act upon craving and destroy it in that way. Nirvana is called the destruction of craving because realizing it brings the destruction of craving. However, it is not the destruction of craving because the destruction of craving is produced by causes. Okay, let me read that again. If nirvana were the destruction of craving, it would not be the unconditioned because the destruction of craving is a conditioned event. Nirvana is called the destruction of craving. You find this a lot in the sutras. Something is called this, but that doesn't make it that. Okay. Like, you may may call a person um, honey. That doesn't make them honey. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, so many people's names have have meaning of something. So, yeah. Okay. So nirvana is called the destruction of craving because realizing it brings the destruction of craving. However, it is not the destruction of craving because the destruction of craving is produced by causes. It has a beginning and an end whereas nirvana has no beginning or end, and it is uh, def- uh, definitely unconditioned. Okay, So uh, it is uncreated because it has no first beginning, Buddha Gosa says. There is no cause that brings about the arising of nirvana, and it is not made of matter. Okay. 
So it looks like it's the ultimate nature. They don't say that in the Pali tradition, but the way it's described, it sounds very much like the Nalanda tradition. The commentaries engage in many debates such as these, so there must have been a variety of viewpoints and a lot of discussion in India and Sri Lanka about what characterized nirvana. We see the sutras give two senses of nirvana. One is, it is the goal, a blissful state free from dukkha and its origins that can be experienced in this life. It is also the object to be meditated on, the unconditioned, the unborn, the unmoving that transcends all conditioned things. So here it is. Nirvana has two different meanings, okay? One is the goal. One is the object of meditation. So when we try and pin it down to only one meaning, then we get stuck. You know? Okay. Mm. Pali commentators propose sever- several ways to bring these two, the goal and the object of meditation, together and show that they are compatible. One is that nirvana is metaphorically said to be the destruction of attachment, animosity, and confusion. But in actuality, it is the unconditioned element that is seen by the attainment of the uh, supramundane path and fruit. Okay. So the realization of this unconditioned element has the effect of cutting away and finally eliminating attachment, animosity, and confusion. Because these defilements are destroyed in dependence upon seeing nirvana, nirvana is called the destruction of attachment, animosity, and confusion, although it is not the destruction of the three poisons. Okay? So that's clarifying this whole thing about how Nirvana uh, can can be the goal that you're seeking, the cessation of the afflictions and so on, and it can also be the um, the the nature, you know, the ultimate nature. Okay, because by the realization of Nirvana, that has the effect of cutting away and finally eliminating the defilements. So there you're bringing it together. Okay, so because the defilements are destroyed in dependence upon seeing nirvana, nirvana is called the destruction of attachment and about animosity and confusion, although it is not the destruction of those three. While nirvana is realized in time by a person, it does not come into existence through the act of being realized. Okay? Just as inherent existence does not cease uh, from the action of being, uh, of seeing emptiness. Okay? As the unconditioned element 
Nirvana always exists. It is the unborn, unoriginated, unchanging, deathless. Because nirvana exists, the eradication of defilements is possible. The cultivation of the Arya path brings realization of the unconditioned. And this realization cuts off the defilements. The meditator who has reached the extinction of defilements gains access to a special meditative attainment in which he or she can abide directly experiencing the bliss of nirvana in this very life. The object that is seen by that meditative attainment is the unborn, unceasing, unconditioned. Okay, so it's, another, it's explaining that again. This we have to really read many times and think about to understand. Okay? So it's getting read here and repeated a little bit, but we have to take it home and really sit with it and try and understand it. The experience of nirvana is beyond our ordinary cognitive processes. To give us a rough idea of nirvana, the Buddha sometimes presents analogies and synonyms. For example, the Buddha referred to nirvana as the truth, the far shore, the subtle, the very difficult to see, the unaging, the stable, the undisintegrating, the unmanifest, the unproliferated, the peaceful, the deathless, the sublime, the auspicious, the secure, the destruction of craving, the wonderful, the amazing, the unailing, the unailing state, the unafflicted, dispassion, purity, freedom, non-attachment, the island, the shelter, the asylum, the refuge, the destination, and the path leading to the destination. So nirvana has been referred to by a lot of different words. (laughs) The consciousness of an arhat realizing nirvana is described. Okay, here's another quotation. Where consciousness is signless, boundless, all luminous, that's where earth, water, fire, and air find no footing. There, both long and short, small and great, fair and foul, there, name and form are wholly destroyed. With the cessation of consciousness, this is all destroyed. Oh, the cessation of consciousness? Some people take that as meaning that when uh, somebody realizes nirvana without remainder, the consciousness ceases and there's no continuation of the person. Okay, but it's explained this consciousness is one where worldly phenomena such as the four elements and concepts such as long and short find no footing. They do not become totally non-existent. But they do not appear to this mind of meditative equipoise focused on nirvana. The ordinary mind of name and form that perceives sense phenomena is cut off. 
Okay? So the consciousness is is one where there's no uh, veiled truths appearing to it. Okay? This is exactly how the nirvana con- uh, tradition describes meditative equipoise directly realizing emptiness. Okay? There's no... Uh, uh, appearance of conventional phenomena to that mind at all. There's only the appearance of emptiness. So here too, okay, it, this is this mind that perceives nirvana is free from all those worldly phenomena, all those veiled truths and the commotion uh, that goes around them. Okay, they don't appear to the mind of meditative equipoise on nirvana. Okay, that does not mean that veiled truths, conventional phenomena, cease to exist when the mind realizes emptiness or nirvana. It's just that the mind realizing emptiness and nirvana is uh, the purview of that mind is not um, veiled truths, is not conventional truths. Okay, just like the pur- uh, the purview of our eye consciousness isn't sound. Just because the eye consciousness doesn't see sound doesn't make sound non-existent. Okay, so just because the mind perceiving the ultimate nature doesn't perceive uh, conventional phenomena don't appear to it, that doesn't mean those things are non-existent. They are just not objects that can be perceived by that kind of consciousness in the same way that the ultimate nature is not an an object that can be directly non-conceptually perceived by an ordinary consciousness we can talk about it and we can have inferences of it and so on but it can't be directly perceived by a worldly mind Okay, some people understand that last line with the cessation of consciousness, this is all destroyed. Okay, so some people understand the last line to indicate that at our hot ship, consciousness is totally ceased. However, it can also mean that without the temporary cessation of, I'm sorry, it can also mean that with the temporary cessation of this dualistic mind, all appearances of veiled phenomena cease in the face of or in the experience of that profound meditative equipoise. So there are similarities as well as differences in the descriptions of nirvana in the Pali and Sanskrit traditions. In the Pali tradition, nirvana is the unconditioned in contrast to samsara, which is the conditioned. Nirvana is completely separate and doesn't have anything to do with the samsaric world, dependent, uh, it doesn't have anything to do with the samsaric world governed by dependent arising. Nirvana, which is reality, is also distinct from selflessness, which is a characteristic of samsaric phenomena. Okay. In the Sanskrit tradition, nirvana is an emptiness, and emptiness is equivalent to selflessness and ultimate reality. 
Emptiness is also compatible with dependent arising, which includes dependent designation. Being empty and existing by mere designation are characteristics of both samsara and nirvana, the Nalanda tradition. In addition, because phenomena arise dependently, they are empty of inherent existence. So dependent arising is the reason, the proof for emptiness. Yeah. Okay. So I'm afraid to ask if there's questions. How about comments? It's it's about the use of the term veiled phenomena, which oh, veiled uh-huh. phenomena, which is familiar when we're studying prasangika. Yeah. But I'm wondering if it if it if it means the same thing in this context of speaking about it from the Pali tradition, like. Um, probably not. Uh, it would depend, you know. Because sometimes you read the Pali tradition and it sounds like things do exist truly, but sometimes you read different quotations and parts and it sounds like it's saying things don't, you know, things aren't truly existent. Does permanent mean no beginning or end? Does it also mean unchanging? Or can something be permanent but also changing? Okay, so permanent in a Buddhist sense means it does not change. But something that is permanent can have a beginning and an end, not a beginning that arises due to causes and conditions, because permanent phenomena aren't produced, and not an end that arises due to causes and conditions. Okay, so then you say, what's an example? So we have loving lamb here, So the ultimate nature of loving lamb is the emptiness of inherent existence of loving lamb. That emptiness comes into existence at the same time loving lamb comes into existence. Okay? And when loving lamb ceases, loving lamb's emptiness also is no longer present. Okay, so, but the, while loving lamb's emptiness exists, it is permanent. It's not changing. Yeah, although loving lamb herself is changing. Um, nirvana is conditioned to samsara? Question mark, or is it a state of mind? Nirvana is what conditioned to samsara? No, it's not. Nir- nirvana is the lack of. One way of talking about nirvana is it's the the lack, it's the cessation of samsara. Okay, and then what was the second part of it? Or is it a state of mind? Nirvana? um, You can, yeah, you can say it's a state of mind. It's the state of mind that is perceiving um, the unconditioned. Yeah. It is the, yeah. It's a, no, it's a state of mind. No, you can't say it's perceiving that because then nirvana would be a, a positive phenomena. Yeah. 
But you could say nirvana is a state of mind in the sense that it is the uh, extinguishment of samsara. It's always troubled me a little bit. If the emptiness of loving lamb comes into existence when loving lamb comes into existence, but you cannot find a moment when loving lamb comes into existence. You is that the point? <laughs> no. You, you, can, you cannot find the moment where loving lamb comes into existence. But when we talk just conventionally, yes, loving lamb comes into existence. You say that both are just desig- merely designated. Both loving lamb. It, yes. Loving loving lamb is an impermanent phenomenon. Yes, that which means it come it arises due to causes and conditions. Yes, yeah, you cannot pinpoint the line, the time when it stops being, uh, you know, an unfinished stuffed animal, and when it becomes a finished stuffed animal. Right. Okay, but that's something else. You know, loving loving lamb, the ultimate nature of loving lamb is it's is her emptiness of inherent existence. For that, the the emptiness of, of loving lamb to exist, loving lamb has to exist. Loving lamb is impermanent and arises due to causes and conditions. the The uh, Emptiness of loving lamb does not arise due to causes and conditions. It is an attribute. Remember entity and attributes? So it's an attribute. Yeah. Then? (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. The consciousness of an arhat realized in nirvana signless, boundless, all luminous, where does that fit in the 12 links? It's the the 12 links have ceased. The consciousness of an arhat is not in the 12 links. So it's nirvana itself. It, the, the consciousness it is an impermanent phenomena. Mm-hmm. Nirvana is permanent. They're not the same. But the 12 links talk about how we get born in samsara. So that all 12 links are, are polluted phenomena. Nirvana is an unpolluted phenomena. So it's not one of the 12 links. When the 12 links have ceased, then you have nirvana. Mm-hmm. So this consciousness is like un, uncaused. The consciousness... No, consciousness is always caused. Consciousness is an impermanent phenomena. Mm-hmm. I'm not understanding what you're getting at. So you have an impermanent consciousness. Mm-hmm. Realizing a permanent object. Mm-hmm. And having a permanent attribute. That's Okay. What is attribute? A quality. So, so the emptiness of the consciousness is a quality of the consciousness. The consciousness is impermanent. The emptiness is permanent. So it has a quality of permanence? Is that what you said? No. no. I'm saying that the consciousness, one quality of consciousness is that it is empty of inherent existence. Okay, 
that emptiness of inherent existence is permanent, even though the consciousness is impermanent. Okay? Yeah. Okay, so now that everything is incredibly clear, how about if we dedicate? Okay. So please, you know, read this, think about it, look in, in Guy Newland's book. Yeah. This, this, uh, these kind of topics are, you know, they're not like precious human life, which, uh, you know, but precious human life can be very difficult to understand, can't it? It brings up all sorts of ideas that we've never had before. Yeah, but when we start talking about the ultimate nature, it's difficult to understand. If it were easy to understand, we would have already realized it a long time ago, and we already would be Buddhists. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>